Over the next three Against Knowledge episodes, I'll tie together several interrelated issues. A century and a half of US education policy, creation and evolution denial, and finally, abortion. Yes, that last one seems like it should be in the Against Sexuality section, but in two episodes we'll see why opposition to abortion was actually about resistance to racial integration of schools. Today, though, we're looking at education policy from the Civil War up through Brown versus a Board of Education and on into the rise of private and Christian homeschools, which is where white evangelicals are hardened against knowledge. So one way to think of it is if we want to understand why a fifth of Americans hold a naturalistic view of evolutionary origins and no more, it actually helps to contemplate why only four in ten are willing to identify slavery as the cause for the Civil War. So we need to examine the white supremacist history that began its critique of the quote-unquote government school in post-Reconstruction era and rebirthed itself as the religious right after schools integrated. And of course, this is my attempt to highlight certain figures rather than an exhaustive history. So with that said, prior to the Civil War, comprehensive education was sparse to non-existent across the South. While a few states in the Northeast had state-funded mandated education, Southerners viewed education as a family or community prerogative. The education of slaves was out of the question altogether, since literacy might be repurposed to absorb Northern abolitionist literature. So during Reconstruction, in the following years, Southern and Northern philanthropists built support for education funding by state legislatures, and they did this slowly, but the situation was dire in the South. Nationally, only 9% of people couldn't read. But in the South, uh, a quarter to a third of whites over 10 years old couldn't read, and black illiteracy was 70 to 80%. Many children attended school only sporadically, if they attended at all. Increased education expenditure resolved the gap quickly, but by 1900, uh, the literacy rates were cut in half. So there was quite a bit of success here. Now, many education initiatives were driven by philanthropists and educators, and they were seeking to replicate in the South the best practices of the North. Northern reformers were by no means progressive by modern standards, though. They wanted to educate black children for factory jobs, not for jobs leading in society. And the philanthropists actually thought, mistakenly, that the South would appreciate the effort to keep that racial hierarchy. But Southerners wouldn't have it, feeling that their culture was being replaced. Newspapers at the time, you can actually go back and find these, even warned of two related threats. The white child weakened by education and the black child uh, able to know their rights. The fight over education did produce real results in literacy, but the racial nature of the fight never concluded. So in the 1870s, the former Confederate chaplain Robert Louis Dabney exemplified the era's white supremacy as one of the most influential Presbyterian ministers of that era. Dabney lamented what he said was the unrighteous taxation of quote-unquote oppressed people or white brethren to provide what he said, and this is a bit horrifying, but people, white people were being taxed in order to, as he put it, quote, provide pretended education to the brats of black paupers who are loafing around on their plantations, end of quote. Theft via taxation made his, quote, blood boil with indignation, end of quote. 
And it was a Princeton theological seminary theologian named Archibald Alexander Hodge, a contemporary of Dabney's, who gave a warning which lives on today in libertarian circles as well as in Christian private and homeschool literature. Hodge warned of the, quote, the most appalling engineering for the propagation of anti-Christian and atheistic unbelief and of anti-social nihilistic ethics, individual, social, and political, which this send-rent world has ever seen, end of quote. What could be so dangerous? It was the, quote, comprehensive and centralized system of national education separated from religion, end of quote. What was so dangerous to him was education that wasn't explicitly tied to religion. By the end of the century, a new term emerges in the literature, and that term is the government school. Now, the government school isn't simply a synonym for public education here, but rather a recurring trope used to advance a theological agenda. Across several decades, it connects across multiple conservative affiliates, the white supremacists, the libertarian, and the Calvinist, most of all. The, for example, the famous Calvinist theologian Rusis J. Rushdini was a leader in the Christian Reconstructionist movement, and Reconstructionists wanted to replace secular law with biblical law, or what they called theonomy, which is really just a more attractive synonym for theocracy. In his famous book, The Messianic Character of American Education, that's 1963, Rushdini described American education as mired in what he called statism in the fascist education of state children, which used Marxism to turn kids into psychologically passive drones. So we see the conflation of statism as the bad guy, but the conflation of Marxism and fascism, the far uh, left and the far right here. And this trope still lives on in this discourse today. Now, this is how the government school as a term gets described. So by the time of the Civil Rights Act, the government school was a rhetorical trope shared between the white supremacists who overly desired segregation and the theocrat desiring a version of biblical legal structure. However, it was the libertarian agenda that gave the rhetorical trope its uh, somewhat more innocuous faith, but equally as dangerous. The 20th century's leading libertarian figure, Milton Friedman, invoked the government school in his 1955 paper, The Role of Government in Education. It's rare to read a position paper which is so deeply wrong in all of its assumptions of its time, and especially in its projections for the future. While the government funding for education was acceptable, Friedman argued that it shouldn't require government administration, so he proposed a voucher system to separate the two. Parents would be given a sum of money to invest in public or private schools as they saw fit, and the market could work out contradictions. Race only enters as a footnote in the essay, which is remarkable given that the Supreme Court's pivotal ruling on segregation a year prior with Brown v. Board uh, had just happened, and yet in this 1955 paper, it's just a footnote. He tells us he hates segregation, but then Friedman says it's not the government's job to force white people to play nice. If the public wanted to fund segregated private schools with vouchers, Friedman felt that that was fine. It was up to the parents to persuade others that segregation or prejudice was wrong. The market and culture would presumably work it all out. And this is precisely the naivety endemic to the individualist libertarian worldview. No drastic intervention is warranted. People are rational agents acting in their best interests. The drastic increase in Southern private schools confirmed Friedman's error. 
Southern private school enrollment began outpacing the North in the 1940s. And then between 1950 and 1965, Southern private school enrollment surged more than 120%. 120% in the exact time when schools are beginning to integrate. So the rise of the private school and the homeschool were reactions to integration, which was a delayed and gradual process of ruling and resistance that persists to this day. Desegregation and resegregation occur in ebbs and flows, and resistance, which once disguised itself as administrative feet-dragging, reappears in more clever disguises today as alternative school experiments. So the Supreme Court decision in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 was not the first ruling for integration, and a number of prior Supreme Court decisions had already begun dismantling protections for segregated graduate schools or professional schools. But Brown v. Board was a pivotal in the secondary and primary schools for overturning the so-called separate but equal doctrine established in Plessy v. Ferguson back in 1896. Justice John Harlan Marshall was the sole dissenter in that Plessy v. Ferguson case, ironically using the term which would be favored by racist when he wrote that, quote, our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens, end of quote. Deciding that Jim Crow laws were weakest in the realm of discriminatory education policy, the NAACP made a tactical decision to focus efforts on denied school admission. A a string of appeals brought the Brown v. Board case to the Supreme Court, uh, victories from the 30s through the uh, early 50s that were paving the way for this uh, ultimate case. Now, Linda Brown was the catalyst, and as a young girl, she walked six blocks to a bus stop to await transportation to Monroe Elementary a mile away, which was one of four all-black schools in Topeka. When her father, Reverend Oliver Brown couldn't enroll her in all-white Sumner Elementary only a few blocks from their home, he filed suit with the NAACP against the Topeka Board of Education. The court reached consensus, and shortly before the end of term in May of 1954, Justice Warren wrote, quote, We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate education facilities are inherently unequal. Initially, it was left to the state attorneys general to provide plans for implementation. But then in May of the following year, the court reversed this leniency and created a different plan called Brown II for desegregation with all deliberate speed. And the South took no deliberate speed. According to the Southern Education Foundation, Southern state legislatures quote, enacted as many as 450 laws and resolutions between 1954 and Uh, 64, attempting to block, postpone, limit, or evade desegregation of public schools, many of which expressly authorized the systematic transfer of public assets and monies to private schools. While none of the new laws specifically mentioned race or racial integration, each had the effect of obstructing black students from attending all white public schools, end of quote. So we're talking about Uh, 450 laws in a period of just about a decade. A most effective instrument was the grant, which fueled the rise of the private school. Integration in my hometown of Little Rock, Arkansas, stands out as a case study of white supremacist intransigence. The first African-American students enrolled at Central High are known as the Little Rock Nine. 
On a morning in September 1957, they arrived at school to hear racial slurs from protesters shouting things like, 2468, we ain't gonna integrate. Segregationists found support with Governor Orville Favis, who deployed the Arkansas National Guard to deny the nine students entry. The school district hated the presence of troops, and the mayor pled for President Eisenhower to do something. And then three weeks go by while the white students are inside being educated and the black students are denied entry. And after the president's warning to Faubus went unheeded, Eisenhower removed uh, Faubus from the equation by federalizing the Arkansas National Guard and deploying the 101st Airborne Division to the school. One brave student later recalled the constant battery of threats and slurs, saying, quote, I considered my tormentors to be ignorant people. They did not understand that I had the right to be at Central. They had no understanding of our history, constitution, or democracy. End of quote. This uh, went on for some time, and after a contentious year, the racist Governor Faubus successfully campaigned to close the schools, uh, the school district's high schools, for the 1958 to 59 school year. Little Rock residents call it the lost year. And this was the lesson. For the white citizens of Little Rock, their children's lack of education for an entire school year was preferable to integration. Now, a coalition was brewing between segregationists, so-called small government libertarians, and Protestant Christians on the right flank by the mid-20th century. And I claim they need to be read as a resonance machine rather than as independent interests. In between Brown versus Board and the Reagan era, the coalition was fertile ground out of which a distinct white evangelicalism grew. The first test run of this as a presidential campaign supporting coalition uh, would, would come to fruition with uh, Reagan administration later on in the religious right. The first test run appears in the guise of the failed Goldwater campaign, which is also where the Democrat and Republican parties really start switching between which is the more racist of the two parties as well. In the 1950s and 1960s, Harding, uh, University, or Harding College in Arkansas and California's Pepperdine College are also generating lots of uh, charges that are sparking across these different interests and constituencies by inviting the Goldwater Fringe and leading libertarian figures. Even at Pepperdine, Friedrich von Hayek and Russell Kirk were uh, frequent speakers. But there was lots of invitations for these libertarian figures and these Christian speakers to uh, cross paths and generate a, a spark across these constituencies. And on the path to his failed 1964 presidential campaign, Barry Goldwater wrote in his book, The Conscience of a Conservative, that, quote, despite the recent holding of the Supreme Court, I am firmly convinced not only that integrated schools are not required, but that the Constitution does not permit any interference whatsoever by the federal government in the field of education, end of quote. And by this period, the ostensibly innocuous cry for religious freedom signaled not just anti-black, but also anti-union and anti-communist affiliations as well. Sex ed was becoming a big thing too, as was part, and it would function part of the, as part of the same block of issues as well. So parents could look like they were protesting against uh, crude material in school, when actually they might be trying to keep the school as white as possible. These words like sex ed or religious freedom were metonyms standing in for opposition to integration. So the various segregationists, libertarian and theocratic Christian, 
positions all march together with similar affinities. Now, there's simply too much material in my book to cover here without this episode stretching for hours, so let me give one example of how, how all these resonances of interest were playing out. In California, where much of the early white evangelical conservative activism was happening, the 1952 Proposition 3 delivered tax-exempt status to religiously affiliated schools. The ACLU tried and failed to muster support against this proposition, but they couldn't overcome the organizing power of a group called Protestants United Against Taxing Schools, which was led by the education activist and pastor Bob Wells. Wells had his own private Christian high school. What else for a white school? It was called Heritage High, and its advertising read, quote, Public schools no longer want to turn out individuals. Instead, they seem intent on molding children into socialist group concept patterns, a peaches and cream world in which everyone passes and no one fails, a never-never land in which the bright students are held back so that the slower students won't be embarrassed, feel discouraged, or left behind. That socialism and group think uh, rhetoric and Never Never Land rhetoric is still all over anti-education crowd literature today. And it still, of course, stands in for um, uh, the, especially when you're talking about the uh, slower students who won't be embarrassed and the brighter students who are left behind and held back. This are, these are still terms that are used today to cover over what are actually racist concerns, right? So they're not actually concerned about the students that are outperforming. Th this performance graphs on to a racist imagination. And now I'll talk about that tax exemption issue in the episode on abortion, but segregated schools will eventually lose tax exempt status in the 80s and uh, even in the 70s, which was the final blow that led straight from Brown versus Board of Education to the religious right. So Southern private school enrollment surged, as we saw, after the Supreme Court initiated desegregation of graduate and professional schools in the 1940s. The graduate level alone triggered that first wave of panic. And then as also we saw, 1952-65, Southern private school enrollment soared while Southern legislators enacted hundreds and hundreds of pieces of legislation to postpone integration. Now, that's the private school, but on the homeschool side, the development was slower. In some respects, homeschooling is as old as education itself. But as a modern religious political phenomenon, it too is a white reaction. Whites are significantly more likely to homeschool, and the Department of Education it estimates that there are 57 million students today in public elementary and secondary schools, and that 3% of all students are homeschooled. More white students are homeschooled than black and Hispanic students combined. Whereas private schools picked up in the 1950s, the homeschool picks up in the 70s and 80s. But I'll end with a scene that I think captures the homeschool as a politically, racially, socially, sexually, informationally, and religiously controlled space. It's a scene from the 2006 film Jesus Camp, which you have not, if you have not seen, you should. A scene depicting a Missouri homeschooling family opens with students watching a video declaring the world is 6,000 years old. The children watch as the narrator asks, Was it an explosion? Did we come from a glob of goo? Is this scientific or is it just based on a belief? 
Then one child is beckoned over to the kitchen table by his mother, who displays a, let's say, uh, a sample lesson. (laughs) They discuss global warming and evolution. The mother probes her son's capabilities for dismantling science, and she asks, what if you had to go to a school where the teacher said, creationism is stupid, and you're stupid if you believe in it? She takes pleasure in her son's answers, which are trite and dismissive. This screen's caption then reads that 75% of homeschool kids in the United States are evangelical Christians. And that's an interesting number. The mother explains, quote, God didn't say have children and give my kids to someone else for eight hours a day. And if I can homeschool them as well as the school can public school them, why would I send them somewhere else for eight hours a day? End of quote. She speaks while preparing a meal in the kitchen, showing how her motherly duties and work as an educator blend together in space. She takes for granted that she's even qualified to do this job of teaching. She explains that the United States was focused on what she calls Judeo-Christian values. And this is a common term today, but it actually emerges prominently during World War II-era anti-Semitism which might suggest that when someone tells you that they are invoking Judeo-Christian values, it's a way to cover up for anti-Semitism rather than to join forces with the Jewish faith. Judeo-Christian values, in a sense, fantasizes semi-pluralism with at least one other faith. Now, she claims that the nation shifted at a precise moment. Quote, We know when things started changing, you know, prayer got taken out of school, and... Um, uh, the school started falling apart, and now the rest of us are going, wait a minute, where is my country? End of quote. She says that there are two kinds of people, those who love Jesus and those who do not. The mother was repeating a theme, whether she realized it or not, a theme of the leading religious right figure, Jerry Falwell, who in 1980 wrote, quote, I believe that the decay in our public school system suffered an enormous acceleration when prayer and Bible reading were taken out of the classroom by our U.S. Supreme Court, end of quote. Certainly for this crowd, the push against knowledge was a righteous crusade. <laughs>